0: Thanks so much for listening to the City Church podcast. We pray that this message draws you closer to the heart of Jesus and impacts your daily life. For more resources, check out ourcitychurch.org. Thank you to the worship team. You guys did a great job. You did a great job, Joey. He like never messes up, so when he does, oh, that one's gonna live for a while. That's good, golden boy over there. <sighs> Welcome to church. If you're new, we've been walking through a teaching series on the Book of First John, going verse by verse through First John. Have you been blessed by this series? I know I have been. So encouraging. John is a bit of a wild man as you dive into his text, right? It's not like reading the Apostle Paul if you're new to the Bible. Uh, the Apostle Paul kind of writes in a real systematic, linear way. John is a little bit more like an artist. We call this series Surrounded by Jazz because he's talking about this and then that and then this and then that. And he's kind of all over the place, bouncing from thing to thing. Some scholars have called it a circular way of writing where he just kind of keeps coming back to these themes again and again. And he'll say the same thing nine different times throughout the text and uh, uh, he's really trying to drive it home. So he's talked about the gospel. He's talked about wholeness. He's talked about uh, loving your neighbor. He's talking about kindness to your brother. Back to these things, almost like he's a sculptor chipping away at some of the marble, and then coming to another angle and chipping away, and then another angle and chipping away. And so we've been walking through this book verse by verse. Now this is week six, so we're almost done with the entire text. But we're going to jump into probably my favorite section of First John. It's just a an explosive section. So let's. Let's just hope I don't mess it up and, uh, and make it difficult. But it's going to be, uh, hopefully for you, life-giving today. 1 John chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 7 and read all the way down to verse 21. Are you ready, church? All right, here we go Love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love, abides in God, and God in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. title of today's sermon, if you want to take notes, is You Should Park Here. You should park here. Go ahead and turn your neighbor, whichever one you like more, and tell them, you should park here. Go ahead and just tell them that. You should, you know, you should park. Park your butt right where you are. You should park here. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. It really is our honor and our privilege to study the word of God. We really believe, God, with all of our hearts, that this this scripture is not just an ancient text written by men, but it's a divinely inspired letter from God. And we believe that it contains your heart, that it contains who you are and how you think. And we want to learn that, God. We desperately, in our day, in our time, amongst the chaos of life that we're surrounded by, we desperately need to know how you think. So God, speak to us and make us more like Jesus today. In your name, amen. Amen, amen. I love a good parking spot. Anybody get a good parking spot today? Anybody? A couple of you. I love a good parking spot. A while back, I was with one of my best friends, Cheech. You guys know Cheech. Some of you guys know Matt DeSisio. He's launching our Hartford campus in October. Very excited about that. And so uh, I was with him a while back, and we were at some big event. There were all types of cars everywhere, and we were trying to find a parking spot. And, uh, and you know, we were driving past spots Going to the front of the building. And I remember thinking to myself, uh, you missed a spot. You missed a spot. Finally, by the third or fourth spot, I said to him, I said, Cheech, what are you doing, man? We, we're, we're missing parking spots. You're not going to find one right up in front. And he looked at me and smiled and he said, I have a parking spot anointing. And I thought, this is where things go too far in the Christian faith. You know, you get all weird. You start thinking there's parking spot anointings. So I said, bro, there's no such thing as these. And as we get up to the front, a person pulls out just as we pull in. And there's, sure enough, just a spot right in front. And he smiles at me the whole time, just like. And we park our car. I'm like, you have a parking spot anointing. That's amazing. And still to this day, the man gets incredible parking spots wherever he goes. It's amazing. I need that anointing. I mean, I, I, wanna, I want a parking spot power, right? I want the magic powers to have parking spots. Well, the other day I was at the mall, and I am aware of the fact that I don't have the anointing of the parking spot. So I parked in the back, not even thinking about it, and I'm walking up to the mall. And as I walk up to the mall, I look to my left and realize that there's a parking spot I didn't see, okay? And so I'm like, oh, wow, bummer. There's a spot much closer. And then I walk by another parking spot on my right that I didn't see see either and then a third parking spot on my left that I didn't see that's right up in front and it made me think for the first time in a long time about Cheech and his anointing And I thought to myself man why didn't I just go for it and in that moment I think I heard God speak to me I really do I feel like God spoke to me in that moment in my inner person and just said really quietly in my inner man you couldn't even see these spots Justin because you're willing to settle for an inferior position and I thought, Lord, are you talking to me about parking spots right now? Or are you trying to get my attention about something else? I was leaving church last week and I was parked on, uh, on College Street there. On Crown, excuse me, Crown Street. And as I'm getting my car, some friends are coming out of the pizza place. Bar right there. And Bar has some good pizza. Amen? It's incredible pizza. Really, really good. Mashed potato, bacon. They got all kinds of amazing things that they do to pizza that no one else does in the world. And so I'm getting in my car and I'm thinking to myself, I'd like some pizza. But some of you guys know my wife has been out of town, which means I eat out like every single day. And so I've been thinking to myself, you know, (laughs) I can't keep eating out. So I can't buy any more pizza. I I should just eat my leftovers. I got some leftovers at home that somebody else who felt pity on me cooked for me. And uh, and so I'm like, I really should eat those. And as I'm getting in my car thinking about all this, two friends from the church, they may be here today, uh, came out of the... uh, of bar with a, with a box, a glorious box. And they're walking and they see me and I see them. I say, hey guys. And without a single word, they just hand me the box. And I open it up and it has every pizza that type that I like, like custom made for me, like seven slices, which is like just enough, you know? And, and, and I'm looking at, it, I'm like, I'm like, And I'm like, I can't. No, no, no. And I give them the box back. And they're like, no, take the pizza. I'm like, no, no. Three times they tried to offer it. Three times I said, no, I'm good. I've got leftovers at home. And so they said, all right, suit yourself. And so I drive away. And as I'm leaving, again, the Holy Spirit just speaks to me and says, why are you so content with leftovers, Justin? And again, in my inner man, I realized, I don't think he's talking about parking spots and pizza. I think think God's trying to get my attention. So when my wife's out of town, I watch manly movies because uh, that's my time, right? It's my opportunity to watch some manly movies. So me and some friends this last week just watched the uh, Rocky 19 or whatever it is, right? It's called Creed. How many have seen the movie Creed? Some of you guys have seen the movie. Okay, the rest of you, shame on you. Go watch the movie Creed. And so uh, and so we're watching uh, that movie. And if you know the story, I'm going to ruin it for you. It's a story about this young man whose dad died in the boxing ring, most famous boxer of all time in Rocky World, Apollo Creed, the Greatest boxer, and so he died in the ring, and uh, and this young man grew up not knowing his dad, and so uh, he never took his father's name. He took his mother's name. He grew up by the name Johnson, and so this guy lives his whole life wanting to be a fighter, but not wanting to live in the shadow of his father, and not wanting to carry the name of his father. And so he eventually convinces Rocky Balboa to train him. So the whole movie is about him getting trained, and he's getting better and better, and finally he gets this opportunity to fight the heavyweight champion. And so he has the chance to fight, but news has gotten out that he's actually Apollo. Creed's son. And he's resisting anybody knowing that that's in fact the case. He doesn't want to carry the name. He doesn't want the heritage that comes with it. And so finally they're in a meeting and the promoter of the fight says, listen, the only way you're going to get this fight against the heavyweight champion is if you take the name Creed. And so this kid's put in a position where he's like, all right, I guess I have to take the name. And and he struggles. He goes back and forth. And finally, he decides to just say, yeah, I'll take the name. And the movie ends. I won't tell you how everything happens, but the movie ends. And at the very end, they're interviewing him. And they say, what would you say to your father right now if you could speak to him? And he looks into the camera and he says, dad, I want you to know I love you. never met his father. He goes, I want you to know I love you. And I'm proud to be a creed. And as soon as he said that, I'm like, he's proud (laughs) Oh my goodness, I'm proud to be a creed too. I'm like, something's like wrong with me. I'm like, what is happening on the inside of me right now? Why is it that I'm crying in a manly mood? This isn't the time. And I'm like, I'm holding it back. I'm like fighting. I'm like, no, no, I'm crying right now. I'm fighting. I'm like, you know, I just, and, and, and in my mind, as I'm watching this, I'm thinking about the pizza and I'm thinking about the parking spot. I'm thinking about the name. And I'm wondering, I'm asking myself, what is going on inside me? What is God trying to do inside of me? And of course, I've been studying this text in 1 John chapter four. And I see this flavor all through the text that God is trying to connect convince us of something. God is trying to reveal something to you this morning at church and yet for some reason we have this tendency to resist. In the scriptures here, John reiterates for like the 50th time in the book of First John, the good news of Jesus Christ. That sin separated you from God, that there's something distorted and twisted in your nature that causes you to resist your creator, who is life itself for you. And that resistance causes a separation and a brokenness in every area of life. And that brokenness called sin separates us from God, but God in his extravagant love goes from creator to creation, takes on human flesh, lives a perfect life, becomes my substitute, and as my representative absorbs the wrath of the Father in the heart of the Son so that all my sins could be fully forgiven if I receive the grace he offers for free, rises from the dead and proves that new life is available to me. It's available to me. Yeah, that's worth clapping about every week, right? It really is. It's available. And when I hear that news, I go, yes, I need that. I have a hunger in my heart, a spiritual cavern that's waiting for a relationship with my creator. I have a longing for eternity beyond this life. I desire to know God in a deep and personal way. Yes, I need that. And yet at the same time, the news seems so good that something inside me seems as though it's too good. And I resist or I hesitate or I take just a fraction of the news and I accept it and yet at the same time don't fully engage it. If you remember the first week we looked at this book, this book of First John, we talked about how John was so excited that your joy could be full. Do you have any idea what it would be like to live with full joy? Now, when we think about Christianity, we think about sometimes rules or traditions or attending church. But the essence of real Christianity is this inner transformation that results in a life or is supposed to result in a life of explosive, unending, unreasonable joy. And yet for so many Christians, that's just a theory. It's not a reality. I wonder here today, if you're a follower of Christ, how much unending, explosive, unreasonable joy you really know. Because I feel that for many of us, me included, it's almost as if I put borders around my experience of joy. As I put limits around the kindness that God can show me. As if he's trying to give me a parking spot in front, but I keep parking in the back. He's trying to hand me a glorious meal, but I resist and accept leftovers. He's trying to give me a name that provides access, but I want to hold on to an old identity. Oh, Justin, you're preaching good now. Thank you, thank you. glory to Jesus, it's all him, it's all him. Some of us deal with this inner struggle and some of us deal with this inner struggle and don't admit it, but all of us have this going on. And John describes the problem in ways that we don't expect. I think about this problem and I think, why do I resist God's love? Is it pride? Is it me wanting to make it on my own? Is it me wanting to prove my own importance? Is that the problem going on inside me? I want to, like the moralism we've talked about the last few weeks, I want to earn my way to God. And I have that false thief of religion, moralism, that says let me just make my way to God by my own merit, my own effort. Is that the religion that I'm clinging to that's so broken? Well, that might be part of it, but John gives a different explanation. He says at the root, you're afraid. You resist God's love because you're afraid it's not true. You resist God's love because you're afraid it's not as good as the preacher says it is. You resist God's love because you're afraid he's going to let you down when you need him most. Your, your family left you down. Your husband let you down. Your wife let you, da- let you down. Your boyfriend let you down. People have let you down. And so believing in a love that seems too good to be true probably is too good to be true. And so we put borders around our heart because we're afraid that God's going to let us down. Or we're afraid that we're going to let God down. You might be here and you say, Justin, I've given, I've had a thousand chances. God keeps giving me chances, but I'm pretty sure I've run out. I'm pretty sure I'm on like the naughty list at this point because he told me a thousand times to walk away from that addiction and I keep going back to it. He told me a thousand times to walk away from that lust and I keep on falling into it. I've done this so many times that, that I just feel like maybe he'll give me a parking spot, but it's definitely not going to be in front. It's probably going to be in back and maybe he'll give me some substance, but it's definitely not going to be hot pizza from bar. It's probably going to be leftovers in the fridge. i know he loves me, but I think there's some qualifiers around his love for me because you don't know how stupid I've been. John addresses the issue in verse 18. Take a look at it with me. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Now that little phrase casts out, it means to expel, to throw, to push away fear, all fear. And then he goes on and he says, for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love has not been perfected in love and so he says that there's this thing called perfect love and if it gets in you and grows it can expel every fear that God will fail and every fear that you will fail every fear that you'll be judged every fear that you won't be accepted he says there's this perfect love well what is this love what is The perfect love. Well, he's already told us multiple times in the text. He says, God is. God is love. God is love. The perfect love you're looking for is in fact God. Let's get real theological for a second. God the Father, the creator, master of all things, the one who designed all things that we see and know and all that we don't know. This creator God has a perfect living image of himself, okay? Now this is going to boggle the mind. This is beyond human comprehension. A perfect loving image of himself and that perfect loving image of himself is in fact a person and it's known as God the Son, a person. So Father and Son have four ever eternally been in unity and that unity is a bond of love a bond of love that is so deep and so profound and so overflowing that the bond itself is a person the person of the holy spirit and so father son in spirit the triune god have existed in fellowship and relationship for all time and eternity past and they are he is one in essence three in persons love itself His goodness, his holiness, his joy, his peace overflowing. And that overflow is called love. Love. So God is love. God is love. But the gospel, and this is what John's trying to get to. The gospel has provided a door into fellowship with the Trinity. Look at verse 9 and 10. Look at verse 9 and 10. Stay with me today because this is the most exciting stuff in life. In this is love. That the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through. Him. So now Christ becomes my representative, and God sees me as he sees his son. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. So the origin is not with us, but that he has loved us and sent his son as a propitiation. We talked about that word propitiation uh, a few weeks ago. A propitiation for my sins, a sacrifice that qualifies me for acceptance, right? And so he's become the propitiation for my sin. In other words, Father, Son, and Spirit, in an unbroken relationship through the gospel. Have now united Christ, the second person of the Trinity, with humanity, and in that unity invited all who would believe into relationship. Somebody in the back got it. So John 17, Jesus says it like this. Look at listen to Jesus' prayer in John 17. He says, I have made known to them and will I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that, so so we have to know him, in order that the love you have for me may be in them. And I myself may be in them. In other words, God wants to take the love that he has for Jesus and put it in you. He wants to take the love that he has for Jesus and put it in you. And so he's saying, you're my, you're my son. I accept you fully. And you're going, no, no, let me park in the back. No, 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 I've got fresh man. No, no, let me eat the leftovers. Wait, I want to give you my name. Oh, I don't, I don't want the name. Let me take my old name. I want to just, and, and there's this resistance that comes out of fear that he's going to let us down. So how do I become perfected in love? Well, we know it's not our efforts, right? We know it's not our merits. John speaks it so simply. This is probably my favorite verse in all of 1 John, in verse 16. Look at the way in which we become solidified and perfected in this love. Look at it with me, verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. (laughs) So, that's it? So we have come to, to know No is mental comprehension, right? I have to understand it. If I don't know what Christ has done for me, I'm still going to think I have to earn my way to God by doing enough good things for him to like me, right? That's what naturally comes to humans. Or I'm going to adjust God's standards to make myself feel better. That's relativism. Either way, it's a thief on either side of the cross, right? If I want to get to the gospel, we've come to know that God is holy, that he cannot accept imperfection in his sight. But his love was so profound that his holiness was satisfied through the death of his son so that we could be fully accepted even in the midst of our imperfection. And so I've come to know, but it's not just enough to know it. I must then do something else. I've come to know, and then I must believe. I've got to grab a hold of it. I've got to cling to this thing. I've got to wrap myself around it. I've got to understand it. And then I've got to say, yes, absolutely. I'm in. I accept. I receive it. We've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Let me try to illustrate. Let me try to drive this one home. There's a strange story in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of strange stories, right? Some of you, I love when somebody just really gets serious about our faith, oftentimes they'll start reading in Genesis, right? And it's usually by like Leviticus that they come up for air and they're like, this is all really weird, right? (laughs) We have a little packet in the back called Following Jesus. Grab one of those if you're new to the Bible. Make sure you start reading the Bible. Usually in the Gospels is a great place to start. But in the Old Testament, there's a wild story in the book of Genesis that is is a little confusing where Abraham is given a promise, and it's the precursor or the foreshadowing to the promise that Jesus will come and save the world. Okay, so God tells Abraham that he's going to bless him with an heir. The problem is Abraham's very old. He doesn't even have a kid. And he says that heir will be a nation, and that nation will bring a Messiah, and that Messiah will save the world. And so it's a pretty big deal, right? And so Abraham is, is, is struggling like you and me. He's afraid. And he's saying, how will I know that I won't let you down? How will I know that you won't let me down? And so he's battling back and forth, and he goes to God, and he says, God, I just need you to prove it to me. I just need to give you to give me assurance about how your contract between me and you is really going to work. And so God says to Abraham, okay, I will prove it. Genesis 15, verse 9 and 10, look what he does. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer. Everybody say Heifer. <laughs> see if I could get you to say that. Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and, and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged them in halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half, just in case you were wondering. I mean, you read this text, and for us, as 2016, we go, oh, okay, great. Well, that makes it all clear now, right? See, we have to understand that what was happening here was very common in that day, okay? Abraham knew exactly what to do. You notice he never got instructions from God. God just said, bring me these particular animals. And Abraham said, oh, I know what you're doing. Sounds good. And he started preparing the animals. So he knew what was going on. We read this and have no clue, right? Because we live today in a written culture. When contracts are made, they're written, right? They're written contracts. So if you buy a house, if you ever bought a house, you know that you sit in a room with a lawyer, pay them a bunch of money, and then you sign eight trillion pieces of paper, and you don't read them, right? You just sign them all. And so now that you've signed them for an hour and a half, the home belongs to the bank, but to you, right? Belongs to you. And so now because I've signed the papers, I own the home. I'm not obligated to anything unless I sign, right? Unless I sign. I'm not obligated to anything. So we live in a written culture that says obligation is confirmed through a signature, okay? Okay. Abraham did not live in a written culture. He lived in an oral storytelling culture. And so in his day, they didn't get out a piece of paper and a pen and write it. They performed a ceremony that represented what would happen to the individual if they had broken the covenant. So the common thing to do was to split these animals in half, separate the two halves, walk in between the animals, and both men would walk through the the mess of blood and say, if I break the covenant, let this happen to me. If I do not hold my end of the bargain, split me in half, tear me apart as we have torn apart these animals. Pretty effective, right? I mean, graphic, but effective, right? Drives the point home a little more than a signature. I was thinking about resurrecting it. We've got a heifer coming in the back. Can you come on in with the heifer? I'm just kidding. Just kidding. So it's strange. So this is what's happening, okay? And so what happens next, though, is unexpected and relates back to First John chapter 4. Because what happens next is Abraham rests. Oh, don't miss this today. Abraham rests. And while he's resting, verse 17 happens. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. In other words, what happened, oh, Mrs. Today, church, is that as Abraham withdrew and rested, God himself appeared in the form of a fire and walked between the pieces. Abraham was asking, How do I know you will keep your covenant? How do I know how your contract is established? And God walked through the pieces, and Abraham never did. So God was saying to Abraham through this, and it was crystal clear to Abraham, and he's trying to make it clear to you today. He was saying, Abraham, if I break my agreement, my covenant of love and favor towards you. May it be done to me what was done to these animals. And if you break our covenant of love and acceptance, if you break our covenant of unity, may it be done to me what was done to these animals. See, Abraham, I'm willing to take both sides of the agreement. If you fail or if I fail, I will receive the penalty. I'm willing to accept your failure on me. And that's exactly what he did, church. Humanity was unfaithful to the agreement, and so God became man and was torn apart so that the covenant could still be enacted. That's exactly what he did. In other words, he's saying, I love you so much that the way I make a bargain is I take responsibility for our unity. I blazed the trail." that unites us. There's not going to be negotiations. There's not going to be discussion. If you want to be in relationship with your creator and he wants to give you the parking spot in front, he wants to give you unbroken relationship with God. He wants to give you a perfect record of Jesus. He wants to give you acceptance and inheritance, adoption and forgiveness. You don't have the right to negotiate the terms. You don't have the right to take a smaller settlement. You don't have the right to say, I don't deserve that. Give me a little less. He says, no, no, no. If you want to come to me, you got to take what I've freely given you you've got to receive the love I have for you we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us, jot this down this morning, Christianity requires that you let God set the terms of the relationship Christianity requires that you let God set the terms why is this so important, we're going to see in just a second you let God set the terms in other words, if God so loves you let him We have come to know. You say, Justin, it doesn't make any sense. I deserve the back spot. You don't deserve any spot. I deserve the left. No, you deserve to starve. He doesn't treat you as you deserve. He treats you as Christ deserves. For as he is, so are we in this world. So what's my role? Verse 16. We have come to know and believe the love God has for us. That's my role. I've got to know it. I've got to understand it. I've got to believe it. God is love. And whoever abides, that word means remain or stays. Whoever abides or remains or stays in love abides in God. So if you stay in his love, you're staying in relationship. If you're staying in his love and God's abides in him and by this is love perfected. How? How? by staying by this is love perfected so we have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in this world in other words by staying in his love by remaining still he perfects the love that he's planted in you through acceptance i have three sons many of you know this right and uh, my oldest is nine and we started getting them haircuts later than I would have liked, you know, to the point where everybody thought they were girls. And so we decided, I was like, babe, I put my foot down and said, honey, we got to get these kids some haircuts. Their hair's you know, crazy looking. And so we got them haircuts. And I remember the first time we ever got our kids haircuts, it was about the most terrible experience ever in life. I mean, they were like, you know, like they, here they are with clippers and buzzers and scissors trying to cut these kids hair. And they're just wiggling everywhere, right? They're getting itchy. They're getting frustrated. They're crying. And so we try to put TV on for them, right? TV, America's great babysitter. We try to put TV on for him. And so, uh, and so you know, uh, that, ha- that helps for like a few seconds. But eventually I'm looking at the barber and I'm like, listen, I'm really sorry. We'll pay you $100, whatever we got to do. Like this is really bad. And so, he, you know, they're squirming and struggling. And, and I tried, I remember having conversations with my sons and saying, listen to me, listen to me. If you don't stay still, if you don't remain in the chair, you're going to end up looking like a monster. I mean, this is going to be bad for you, okay? But if you will just stay still, my son, you will look glorious. You know, I think God's trying to get your attention today. I think he's trying to say to you, why are you always trying to earn your way to me? Why are you trying to always prove that you love me? Why are you trying to do enough to make me accept you? If you see the gospel, if you see what I've done for you, if you accept the relationship on my terms, then there's no more striving in my love. There's no more negotiations for acceptance. You just sit in the chair and I make you glorious. I make you glorious. And then something happens if you stay in the chair. Verse 11, Beloved, If God so loved us, if it gets in you, we also ought to love one another. Now we read that and we think to ourselves, oh yeah, moral obligation. See? If God so loves us, we also ought to, right, ought. When Americans hear that word in this context, we think ought. We think ought, like a moral obligation, like you ought to do your chores. You ought to take out the trash, right? You ought to vote. You ought to, that type of a thing. You have a moral obligation. You ought to do these things. But the essence of the text in the Greek is actually not moral obligation. Instead, it's referring to unique design, unique design. In other words, he's saying if God so loved us, we ought to, by our unique design, love one In other words, like a bird ought to fly, and a fish ought to swim, and a dog ought to bark. A child of God will always love because there's this unique design that God has crafted within them through regeneration, and the regeneration of their heart compels them to love. So brothers and sisters, like a dog that barks or a bird that sings, You ought to love. Love comes out of you when love's gotten in you. Loved people love people. And when I do that, no one has ever seen God. Verse 12, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected. His love is perfected. His love becomes visible. God becomes visible when Christians show unreasonable love to one another. God becomes visible. He sums it up in verse 19. In this simple phrase, he says, we love because he first loved us. That's not obligation. You gotta rewire your brain. In other words, you have a supernatural capacity to love if you let him expand your heart through his love. Jot this thought down as we close out today. God's unreasonable love Grows my heart. God's unreasonable love grows my heart. See, we live in a pretty broken world, church. A world that is desperately begging for someone to show a way that makes sense. And the amazing thing about God's love is that it boggles the mind and yet at the same time resonates in the soul. It makes sense. And if I have been so loved, God does a work in me that enables me to so love. I can't hold unforgiveness in my heart if I know what Christ has done for me. I can't hold hate towards my brother. I can't judge a person by the color of their skin or by their economic status. I can't do that because I've been humbled by the sin I see in my own life and made confident by the identity I've received freely through Jesus. Some of us are only getting half of this, only getting a a taste of it, only getting a corner of it. He wants to give you more. He wants to show you more. God wants to show you how much he loves you this morning. You know, I wonder if you could believe with me today that before you walk out of these doors, God gives you a revelation of his love. You might be a Christian for 30 years. You might have it all figured out and know every Bible verse... And be like Bible verse king man. Or this might be your first time ever in church. I've got a really simple message for you today. There's a God and his love doesn't even make sense. It's unreasonable. And yet it's true. It's so true. It is so true. It is so good. It's too good to not be true. It's too good to not be true. There's no way a human could have ever come up with this story of love. And you know, I've studied for years now, from Genesis to Revelation, back and forth, back and forth, asking one question of God. God, why do you love me like this? Why do you treat me like this? Why have you forgiven me of sins I haven't even committed yet? Why would you accept me and call me perfect when I'm still so messed up? Why would you treat me as your son... When I don't deserve to be your slave, why would you do this, God? Why do you love a person that's run back to sin too many times? Why do you love a person that has a darkness in their heart that seeks attention or pride or fear? Why would you love me like this, God? I certainly do not deserve it and I absolutely have not earned it. Why do you love me like this? And you know the the answer I've come to all across the scriptures, he only gives one answer. And I'll be honest, it's a little unsatisfactory. Just because. I love you just because. That's why. I just want to. You got to hear that today. I love you just because I want to. I love you just because I want to. Would you stand on your feet with me this morning? Question for you why are you parking in the back? Why why are you parking in the back? Why are you denying the feast for the leftovers? Why do you keep resisting a God who loves you extravagantly? Listen, if you just spent a little bit of time meditating on his love, you would find that there's a well of joy that you can live from. You say, Justin, I'm alone. I don't want to be alone. I want to be married, I want to have a family, I want to do all these things. Friend, you're never alone. You say, Justin, I have a family, and they drive me nuts. They're driving me crazy and I just want five minutes alone. The family that you long for is really your relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit. That's the great essence of your heart. You say, Justin, I'm addicted. There's an addiction that's greater than any drug or alcohol or any sexual sin. It's the addiction to the love of God. It's an addiction to his presence and his nearness in your life. I don't know what you're going through right now, but I know that God has unreasonable love available right now. You know, and I am just crazy enough to believe that this morning before we leave, God wants to meet us and he wants to unveil and display his love in a unique way to you. How do you need him to display his love? I don't know. But I do know that he wants to do it right now. That God the Father in heaven is here. His spirit resides in this room right now. And he is longing to touch your life with his unreasonable love. He is longing to break all of your self-effort and striving and show you that you actually become holy when you accept his forgiveness and his mercy and his acceptance. And that acceptance leads to obedience, not the other way around. Your obedience will never earn acceptance. But if you're here today and you'll receive the acceptance he offers, you'll find the capacity to obey. And it's through the power of his Holy Spirit inside of you. Would you just receive his love today? Would you just come a little bit closer? Would you just open up your heart? See, we're going to sing a song that says he delights in showing mercy. He delights in showing mercy. What a simple idea that God actually enjoys loving you. All across the room, if you're comfortable with it, would you just close your eyes and maybe lift up your hands as a sign of surrender? I don't know how long you've been a Christian or how many times you've been to church. That doesn't matter today. If you're here and you're just saying, you know what, I want to contact with God's love. I want to know what you're saying in my inner man. I want to know it in my soul. I just don't want to know it in my brain. I want to know it in my soul. God, I need you to remind me again about your love. I need you to display it for me again. Would you pray with me this morning? Holy Spirit, would you come right now into the room? Walk among us. Right now, Lord Jesus, walk among us. God, for the person who's lonely, for the person who's rejected, for the person who feels like a failure, for the person haunted by the shame of an abortion, for the person afraid because they're on their own and they've been through a wicked divorce, for the person who doesn't have a dollar in their bank account, for the person who can't see one step ahead of them, for the person that's overwhelmed with the needs of their kids, for the person who is so afraid to die. For every one of us here, with all of our issues and struggles and inconsistencies and insecurities, I pray that right now the power of your spirit would enter the room and that you would display your profound and unreasonable love in a way that only you can by the spirit on the inner man. We've studied your word. We know now enable us, God, by your spirit to believe. Help us, Lord, as we take that step of faith. In Jesus' name, let's sing For more information and resources, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.